This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. We are back for part two of our two-part series with Cameron Schwab, author and founder of Design CEO a leadership and strategy business which uses a range of methodologies and frameworks to help CEOs and their executive leadership teams succeed. Today on the show, we discuss executing a game plan, being accountable, and if losing is instrumental to success. You'll learn how leaders ensure strategy is executed, why adversity is so important, and unique ways you can keep your people within your business accountable. We also take a dive into Cameron's book, More to the Game, where we discuss organisational culture and its importance to successful businesses. Let's jump in. Cameron, thank you for taking the time to catch up again for part two of our chat about leadership. My first question, as you know, I'm a big sports fan and we talked a lot about sport previously. One of the things I love about sport, you get to listen to the coach straight after the game. And one of the things you hear a lot from the losing side is I'll say things like, we did not execute what we wanted today. I think to myself, well, setting up a game plan, having a strategy is really one thing, but then executing is another. Can you just talk us through leadership and strategy execution and what does that all mean? So a game of football, it is pure competition. That's one of the elements of it. So the main reason a team doesn't execute on the day is because it's playing an opposition which doesn't allow them to execute. That's the main reason. The second element of it is the group of players. There might have been some element of self over team inside that, particularly when you start getting beaten or the momentum of the game can fall away. Often that's the test of where the players are prepared to maintain. There are certain challenges inside that too because we've got some athletes who are actually, we want to play very much within a team-based ethos, but we also have to allow individual players to utilise their own genius inside it as well. So they're the game breakers and game. So man's got to understand his limitations. It would be one of those, but there are certain players who their upside is so extreme that almost team environment is you're actually setting the team up in a way where that player gets to play to those their extraordinary talents and if they don't have a good game well that can affect and the third part is which is really underestimated is the amount of time players have actually played with each other is almost the number one defining characteristic of the most successful teams when we saw the grand final with Geelong playing the Swans well Geelong was the oldest team that's ever been fielded in a game and there's a whole lot of things embedded in that, as in there's lots of wisdom and understanding. And there also could be some elements of an athlete who might have tipped over the edge in terms of their capability. That athlete tipping over the edge of their capability might have got exposed in a less capable team than it would be in, say, the Geelong team now where there's lots of support. The key element of that experience is that there's an insight which the players have in regard to each other, which is just so fundamental to if you're looking for an edge of performance 
that is a really core part of it. And one of the things that I find in business, I'm surprised how quickly people change teams, as in they move their team members around into different groups. They go through their phases where they sort each other out, they understand what they bring, what they don't, because there's always forms of subcultures inside and greater culture inside various groups. And because we're moving them around all the time, we never get those to settle and we wonder why teams. And also with the, particularly now with there's, and I'm sure you guys have faced into it where you're losing people and you're not allowing it to settle. The overarching thing that we're trying to do is create an environment which allows our people to perform at their best. That's the overarching thing. So what that looks like if you're a team which is trying to drag itself off the bottom of the ladder is very different to a team which is in premiership mode, for example. If you've got a group of young people who are just working out, they're all first year in their roles, that's a very different way of setting a team environment up. As a leader, we've got to be able to meet that group where they are now in terms of their and don't necessarily have the same standards and expectations as you would of a group who have worked together for 10 years and have got a track record of working really well together. And what we talk about in an overarching sense is a very long-winded question. Is we answer is that we talk about what we call the mechanics and the dynamics of the team. There wouldn't be dramatic difference from club to club on mechanics. There wouldn't be. Often they're talked about as very, oh, they play this style, they play that style. And yes, they're always making adjustments to mechanics, but there is enormous variation around dynamics, as in the groups of people who know have worked out a way of working out really and playing really well together. That's the effort that is then made. You can't get the dynamics right unless you get the mechanics right. So you've got to make sure your systems are right, your ability to recruit the right players, bring them through the right systems, develop them properly, develop a team style, will bring success at this level of competition. You're just looking to bring good people in, teach them well, make sure they work well together, understand how our systems work here. All those things are the same. But what we have a tendency to do in business is shift the dynamics around a lot. We don't allow people to settle. We don't allow people to grow. We don't allow people to fail and pick themselves back up. All of those things are really critical elements of team. If you look at the Geelong team, which is just thrashed the Swans in a graph, there's a lot of players who this that same team got beaten by 80 points in a preliminary final last year. They've turned around by 160 points in the space of that. There would be some adjustment to the mechanics, but it was mainly they've probably had some pretty hard conversations with each other, I would as well. Awesome. Now in sport, we keep score on everything, whether it's the result of the game or different yeah. stats of players in the team. Yeah. How important is keeping score in business and how can leaders leverage the scorekeeping card? Just make sure we're measuring the right stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that would actually be the first things. That would be the first thing. So we measure behaviors. The most important measurable is how people behave. Yeah, that's even we, we talked in the first session about showing up. We use a one to seven scale to measure everything really. So outstanding is a seven, five is a good. So you'd like to think you can get to good on a consistent basis. So good's actually not easy because it's like when you ask people, are you a good driver? Well, everyone says they're a good driver. Well, that means not everyone's good drivers because people are getting killed on the road or, <laughs> yeah. you know, or, and I'm a cyclist. So I know there's not a lot, there's a lot of people who aren't good drivers, you know, so, but everyone says they're a good driver. And one of my little, I write sort of five things down at the start of each day uh, under a trade, my trademark's finding something. So I write finding something at the top of the page each day. And the very first thing I write then is do good work. I want to do good work. It doesn't say do great work, do outstanding work. I just want to do, if I consistently do good work, at least you give yourself a chance that some outstanding stuff might happen, but there'll probably be a bit of average in between. Measuring on good, like are you turning up with a good attitude every day? Do we know which version of you is actually going to show up today? Or do we have to actually wait for, you've had that second cup of coffee to to work out (laughs) which version you've just fronted? All of these things become an important. So the most important measurable is behaviours. Because if we get the behaviours right, the score takes care of itself. 
How do you measure the behaviours though? When we teach, we do a little bit of work around setting up KPIs and incentive yeah. schemes and we yeah. say to the people, yeah. you need to incentivize and set KPIs on the yeah. behaviours you want to encourage. And then you measure the things that you sort of ask them to do. So if they get the KPI, then they have the right behaviour obviously. In my experience, I haven't seen many incentive schemes which have successfully incentivized the behaviours you're seeking in a total sense. If I incentivize someone for selling more of something than someone else, if you like, well, there's a chance that could create selfishness mm. inside the organisation. And then what we're going to know, we're going to have a team incentive, are we? Okay, well, then everyone goes, all right, what about that bloke not pulling his weight over there? You know, it just actually breaks down then. So even in sport, we don't have many incentive systems now. I think you motivate people by creating meaningful work, which is meaningful to them. If you don't find any meaning in the role that you're actually playing and both in, in, regard, in the context of the organisation but also the work itself, well, you probably shouldn't be in the job. What we tend to do is we tend to think that these things are working in ways that perhaps they're not. If you do have people who are incentivised by that thing, well, you, you then say, well, what would it take you to maintain the same effort without that? My experience is most of them say, if I know I'm going to get paid well for the work I do, I'd, I'd be pretty right. I don't think the carrot things work much for a long time. And in putting the carrot out there, you always have to ask is what behaviour is that now going to encourage? Because yeah. for generally every little thing, that, even if it's unbelievably well-intentioned what we're actually doing, it's like when the AFL change one player rule and then the coaches all go work out how they're going to exploit it and it creates a thousand other things, you know, you go, well, hang on, didn't, geez, I didn't see that coming because you couldn't see it coming because the future's unknown and unknowable. And I even found myself at different times falling for that as well. Like I'm the CEO of the AFL club and I've got a profit incentive in my contract. Well, I have a fair say what our profit is. <laughs> like as in, are we going to put it into 2022 or am I going to put it into 2021? Well, you don't want me behaving like that. No. And I go, well, that's actually worth 25K to me. I might actually just bloody flip it around a little bit. And that doesn't make any difference with the accountant's notice. Well, no one will notice. Well, but you don't want me even thinking like that. So I used to have a, in the end, I just have what I call a board incentive. And I never think about it at all. And then come the end of the year, the board would all sit down and go, has Cameron done a good job? Yeah, here you go. Here's another. Yeah, here's a little bit of money for him. But I didn't actually even want it away. It was almost one because I thought that somehow, I reckon they pretty much knew I was trying hard. You know, I wasn't going to try any harder. And in fact, probably the challenge was me, can you just ease up a bit? You know, <laughs> that stage of life, you're just like full on, you know, and I was probably going a bit too hard. Now, we talked about accountability a little bit. You've been a CEO of a few football clubs there, and I'm sure at the ground there's a lot of accountability discussed. As a CEO, yeah. how did you and what were some of the techniques you applied around yeah. accountability of your team and how did yeah. you deal with that? I dealt with it as the last thing. We create an environment whereby we can measure accountability. Even in the work I do now, I go through, I say, it's if I don't get these three pieces right, there's no accountability. So the first one is I try to lift. How do I lift this group? And I lift by trying to build connection. And you can sense I use storytelling and so lift. Then you seek to shift, as in you're shifting a piece of thinking somewhere. If you try to shift thinking without lifting you will not get anywhere. You've got to build a motivation and a reason and an understanding. So lift, shift, and the vision and all that stuff can come into play in the lift piece. The shift is then about making sure that I've, we're building the right skills and knowledge and understanding. And the third piece is then to challenge them. Okay, you're going to walk out of the room, you've got to do this yourself now. So you then challenge here are the 
five pieces of work you were expected to do. The lift is about connection. The shift is about capability. The challenge is about character. If you get the lift, the shift, the challenge in place, you now can build accountability. If you miss out on any of those three, you won't get accountability. Ultimately, accountability is based on self-responsibility. And so you're building a way of which people are prepared to take responsibility and lift themselves to a standard and an expectation. And part of our insight as leaders is to actually understand and respect what level that person's now at as it relates to that expectation. So if you've got someone who's coming into the workforce for the first time, it's a very different way of teaching, coaching, developing than someone who you've brought across from another organisation who's been in the industry for 20 years. It's a different mindset and a different expectation around that. Because even in sport, we see 22 players running out on the ground. They're all at very different levels of their understanding, insights and confidence and beliefs and all that sort of stuff. Even if they're players, you know, some players played five games versus the Blackies played 300. It's yeah. just you can't have the same expectations. No, I agree with that. I think you need to set that right expectation and get the right results from the people. You don't want to put expectations on someone that's so senior against the whole group. So you've got to assess each individually yeah, yeah. and keep them it's accountable a- in different ways. Yeah, so even thinking of accountability as an outcome, not as a driver. Accountability is the thing that we're seeking to be good at. So what are the things that are going to drive accountability? So even trust, an unbelievably critical, important aspect of performance. I don't think there's anything more important than trust as it relates to performance particularly in in terms of belief, I believe you can do it. So therefore, I trust you to be able to do it. In many ways, I think we're in the belief business. How do we build belief inside our organisations? Because often we're asking people to do things that are difficult and challenging, and they might not necessarily believe they can do that. So we help them build that belief. You know, that's development, training, mentoring, coaching, whatever terms you want. So if trust is an outcome, why don't we have, let's be good at trust, So you then say, how do we actually build an organisation which is good at trust? So if accountability is important, let's be good at accountability. How do we actually get to accountability? What are the elements of accountability? And I used three that I used, lift, shift, challenge, to get to accountability. If you just say accountability is a thing, they go, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And anyone nods their head and go, yeah, yeah, they don't know what the fuck you're talking about. (laughs) It just becomes like a... You know what I mean? Even on the head, yeah, that accountability shit, it's really important. <laughs> how do we get there? How are we enforcing it? How are we creating it? Yeah, love it. That's so good. Now, I want to talk about your book, More to the Game. Right. Uh, yeah. I love it. And you illustrated it yourself, from yeah. my understanding. So you did an awesome yeah. job. Now, yeah. in the book, you yeah. talk about the Drucker quote. And what I'd like to do is just read a passage from your book. So Culture yeah. Eats Strategy for Breakfast. And you wrote, I now think of culture as an outcome, the product of many organizational behaviors, good and bad, particularly the personal conduct of more influential individuals, mainly the leaders. Can you just expand on this for our listeners? So it's one of those things. That I've not been saying culture eats strategy for breakfast for about it. 25 years before I said that's bullshit. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, everyone, and then again, they'd nod their heads. They go, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, that culture stuff, it's really important. But then that's actually saying, well, what play the strat- What role does strategy play in regard to culture? Well, strategy plays a huge role. So strategy, for instance, is we strategically decide who actually we employ, I assume. If we employ poor character people, we're going to have poor culture. So therefore, strategically, we make a choice. No, we're only going to employ good quality people. The interesting thing, and I, I take a bit of interest in, in Fremantle. I was, I was CEO there for eight years. And Fremantle has strategically 
a challenge. Every organisation has a strategic challenge. Like Geelong's a really interesting one because strategically a challenge was the fact they played at Geelong for a long time. Now it's actually a strategic advantage. They've turned it into an advantage for themselves. And it's had a little bit to do with the evolution of the surf coast and all that sort of stuff. But it's ended up and Geelong's changed. But that was seen as a big disadvantage for a long, long time. So Fremantle, one of the disadvantages is you draft players from Victoria, of which the majority of the players come from, is that they want to come home. That's actually the challenge. So what they said was we strategically are going to focus on bringing West Australian origin players because they're lesser flight risk than what a Victorian player was. And what they ended up with was, yeah, West Australians, they weren't really strong characters. That's what they ended up with. They had all these guys, they're not leaving or they're going anywhere, but even those guys were probably still possibility of going anywhere because they might go there, they wouldn't feel as embedded. They weren't people who were a team was as important to them. They weren't as, mm. they didn't really buy in on what the club was all about and all those things, even though they were living with their families or close to their families. So they changed it. This is about three years ago because I had to always deal with this stuff. They said, no, no, we're going to recruit on character and competitiveness as our core element and we hope that those good character, really highly competitive people end up just wanting to play here and staying here. Well, I was there and he's only just retired. This is how long ago it was. Well, David Mundy was one of those. He's a Victorian. He's ended up playing 360 games for free, a high-quality character and wonderful competitor and kept getting better and better and better because of those qualities. So they've now actually written it into, like, because I just downloaded recently their strategic plan, it's actually written in as one of their strategies. Mm. We're going to employ high character, high competitive people. But then you're actually going to potentially make trade-offs because often very competitive players aren't great kicks. Why? Because they're just in and under at the ball, at the whatever. That's how they built their game around that. They've probably become that because they weren't great kicks, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So there are little compromises you have to make. There's all little trade-offs that you're making all the way. If it was obviously one thing, we'd all be doing it. So this idea of character of culture. They're saying, no, no, we'll build a great culture if we get really good character and really competitive people into our environment. And the other thing about really competitive people is they often get themselves in trouble. Mm. That's, that's the other thing because they're actually competitive. So competitive could be standing your ground in a pub after a couple of beers as well, okay? Yeah. So it's your highly competitive player, which is most likely to get one of those 4 o'clock in the morning phone calls to the CEO. Yeah, yeah. You've yeah. got to get them out of trouble. Well, then they've got themselves into trouble, you know. You've got to work through whatever that issue is. These are all strategic choices is the long-winded answer to this thing. So you get to actually choose by who you let in the room, the culture you have, and by definition, if it's a choice, that's strategy. And I think Fremantle obviously previously were putting a Band-Aid on the solution saying, okay, you know what, they all want to go home, bugger it, we'll just hire, you recruit yeah, WA yeah. boys. And then eventually they realise it doesn't work because – they only had to select from a smaller pool or whatever it yeah, was. The pool was smaller. Yeah, and yeah, it just no, didn't yeah. work. Whereas then they said, okay, you know what, bugger that. We'll build a culture where when they come here, it's such yeah. a great environment that they won't want to go back to Victoria. And if they do, yeah. they miss out. And I, I think that's quite brave. But no, It quite, is. Yeah. It's really courageous. And, and But it took the error to get mm. there, if you like. And they end up bringing, say, Andrew Brayshaw in, who's just you know wonderful player, great character. And those guys end up creating their own culture. Yeah. And that's what you actually want. You want the players to actually go, no, this is our club. This is our club now. Even though we all, every football club and every organisation, it does stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before it. You want it to be their club. Because I got to spend time at three clubs. People often, oh, who, we, you know, where does it sit for you? And there's a wonderful line from Ron Barassi, because he went from Melbourne to Carlton. It was the, it's probably still the biggest story in the history of the game when he does that. But it's like, you know, he was just the icon. He played in six premierships and he's moving away from the club that he's 
his dad also played with who was killed in Tobruk in World War II. So it's just this huge, Brassy is just this massive name and, and he's gone to Carlton. And the question is, he's submitted his clearance to go to Carlton, which you just have to do in the day. And he's been like, he's almost been doorstopped when it happened in, this is in 1965. So this is actually on YouTube. And someone says, oh, where is your heart, Ron? That's what the question I asked of him. He said, look, you are just destroying society, mate. By you <laughs> clubs. It was like the degradation of, you know, all human values by football changing clubs. And Ron looks at the guy in the eye and he just puts his hand on his chest. My heart's right here, mate. Then he goes on to say, your heart is where you're at at the time. That's the idea. And Ron Brassie ends up being a life member of four AFL clubs. Like it's extraordinary. He gets a, he's a life member of Melbourne, North Melbourne, Carlton and the Swans, you know? Yeah. So, mate, his heart was there. If you get that type, and he's a pretty unique personality, obviously, but my sense is that just watching a player and they're a young group is that I reckon a lot of them could point to their chest and go, my heart's here. And that's what you want to get to. That's what you want to get to. Love it. Now, the other thing I was going to say, the other quote I loved, and it's sort of in line with this culture, was you say leadership is about the example you set mm. and the culture you create. And I love that example part. Do you want to mm. sort of expand on that and what you sort of mean by that quote? Okay, you can, you can define it in any way. Like in the conversation we've had, how you show up, that's a key one. And showing up's easy when it's easy. So if we're going well and uh, we've won the last five games in a row, that's sometimes you've got to show up in a different way because you can get a bit ahead of yourselves. And I've done that. Even little check-in, and I would do this regularly, even before meetings and even like the conversation we're having now, I ask a, a little question of myself, what does this situation expect of me? So even before I come on here, what does this situation expect of me? So I go to my energy. I go to my meeting you where you are now. Yeah, it's me and you talking, but it's actually hopefully other people listening and getting value from it. As a leader, the four words I'd write down is calm. What would a calm leader do now? What would a brave leader do now? What would a humble leader do now? And what would a compassionate leader do wow. now? And so the fourth ones I've only added in the last... So it's almost like a COVID type thing. And often the person you've got to be most compassionate to is you because you might have fucked up. Leadership is not required unless we're dealing in complexity and ambiguity and nuance and friction because that's when leadership's being asked of you. We don't need leadership if the world's going swimmingly. We want you out of the way. We just want you cheering us on. But if it gets ambiguous, so you're only doing leadership well is if you're facing into what we call the 4951. And so if you're going to be a 4951 leader, you better get some 6040s around you to pick up some pieces. Then that's then a challenge for you. So that's just a lovely little check-in. Even before you're going into a difficult conversation, a difficult negotiation, just write down, what does this situation expect of me? And even when I talk to Lisa, can I think about it? I even ask, what is your system of thinking about this thing? It's not sitting in the car or on the tram. It's or in the shower, standing in the shower, the pen's going to hit the paper at some point. I love that. What does the situation need of me? It's such a powerful statement. I can only remember once where I've probably used that. I had to make a very difficult business decision, and this was a long time ago. My firstborn was just recently born, and I said, I need to do this for my family. This decision Mm -hmm. is important, Mm -hmm. and it's for my family. It was a difficult decision, and at the time, what does the situation need of me? At that time for me, it was... My family need me and this decision is important for them. It was a difficult thing that I had to do and we executed it and and I felt good about it. But I like the way breaking it down and asking that question regularly. All the time, mate. I love it. It's so important. And it's so easy. So even I'd be in a board meeting and I'd find myself getting a little bit hot under the collar because we're talking about just sometimes, you know, board meetings just get out of whack and Mm. 
again, because of the competitive nature and the pride, always that bullshit pride, you know, and you're getting people questioning, which is their job, by the way. Like, it's the very reason they're actually employed in the first place is to question you. And somehow I'm personalising their question because I think of myself as the expert or somebody bullshit. So I just go, what does this situation expect of me? And it was like I was just taking notes in the meeting and I'd just go calm. And so often it would be calm, say nothing. So I'm just going to say nothing for the next whatever. And often that is they sort the conversation out amongst themselves then. And that's a much better outcome than you being defensive. Someone will go, come on, mate, you don't know anything about this stuff. What are you talking to the coach about that thing for? You reckon you know he's going to play on a halfback flank, do you? Mm. You know, so they'd almost sort the stuff out for themselves. But if I was chipping in and telling them they shouldn't be talking about it, man, I'm just, all I'm doing is just killing relationships and making myself look like, again, because that's lack of humility. And all of these things then come into play. And I don't teach anything over fucked up. So these are all parts of this thing. And I've even done it with kids and all that sort of stuff. Even crazy things like when you're sitting in the car and someone cuts you off or something like that, and your first response is to give them the, you know, yeah. no, just what's this situation expected me? Expects me to be an adult. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it expects of me. Yeah. Expects me to behave like a 58-year-old bloke who's been driving a car for 38 years. You know, so. And there's no point that you can't change the situation. He didn't hit you. Just move on. I want to talk about losing and dealing with adversity. So as you know, I'm a huge, huge Hawks fan. And for me, I was there in 2012 and Mm. I remember walking out of the stadium. I knew we had a great team and we were the best in 2012. And I thought to myself, you know what? I reckon we needed to lose this because I reckon they're going to come back bigger and better. And I genuinely believe that, we would not have won three straight if we didn't lose in 12. How can business leverage losing better? I'm glad you felt that way because I don't reckon Hawthorne would have felt that way. Oh, really? I think they just would have gone, well, we got beaten. Why did we lose? Because really that was one of those games if the game, Hawthorne would just happen to be behind when the siren went. Mm. It's just one of those games. It's like Carlton missing the finals this year. They'll just, everyone will say, oh, they, you know, Collingwood outplayed. They did. And there's no doubt they're, they're quite practiced at it. But I was at the week, the game the week before we, where Melbourne got been, uh, beat Carlton in the last minute. Melbourne didn't play that well. Carlton played okay because I pick it, kicks a goal from nowhere and you get beat. So even the Swans, if the game goes for like 15 seconds longer, I reckon Collingwood play in the grand final. And a sense that the game, is in far more control than what it actually is. <laughs> that would be what it, it is a very random game. So from their point of view, sport builds off three forms of analysis. So the three questions we ask, win, lose, or draw, what happened? So if we're not careful, we win by five points. The what happened question isn't given the same level of discipline, structure, system, analysis, as if we lost by five points. Because in, in a five-point loss, you just happen to be behind when the siren goes. So what happened? So the analysis is critical. Then what now? How do we respond to whatever that analysis actually is? So what, what do we do about that now? Did, what did we learn from this? So what happened is mainly about learning. What did we learn from the game that was just played? Did we learn about a player playing in a certain role? that play, we wouldn't, We're going to play him there. We're going to have to do more of this. We need to find someone else who can play that role here. What if we play them there? So all of that analysis goes into it, and there's a lot of people working on that all the time. So what now? Okay, how do we respond to that? And then what next? That's a really underestimated question. Does it change anything about where we're heading? So what happened? What now? What next? So that, that amount of analysis goes into win, lose, or draw in regard to that. In terms of some of the more subtle aspects of motivation, I understand where you're coming from. 
you know, that if something sits in the pit of your gut and becomes a little piece of extra motivation for you to push a heavier weight, climb a, put a higher expectation on each other, do all those sorts of things, yes, I, I get that. I'm not underestimating that human nature element of it as well. But part of being an elite sport and being a leader is actually being a bit better than human nature. You're allowed to go away from the game thinking the way you did, but if Alistair Clarkson does that, he's not doing his job properly. Wow, that's true. Yeah. My last question, it's similar to the losing, but it was even in Chris Scott's speech. And I feel like successful teams have always have got some story about overcoming adversity. And Chris Scott said it very briefly. He said, oh, we had lots of challenges and we fought through adversity this year. Do we need to have adversity to have success? Is there sort of, does it bring the team together? What does adversity do that shines after that? I can't think of anything that is worthwhile achieving in life which hasn't got adversity embedded in it. Mm. Every aspect of our growth is a result of doing something hard. You're watching your kid first walk. Those first steps are hard. Then the hard becomes easy. Then they start to run. It becomes hard again. Then you put them on a bike and then you take the training wheels off. Then they climb a high slide and they get grazed knee. There's hard embedded in everything. And I think if we're not careful, we keep thinking of our life as if I get through this hard bit, it'll somehow be easy. Even in, say, your, your personal well-being, your, I've had cancer. That's one of the harder things which has happened. And I think often about what it's taken from me because I had surgery and had pro- prostate cancer, so blokes get yourself checked. That's part of it. And I've got no doubt there's part of me which grieves what you now don't have because of that. But I know that there is somehow... There's been like a gift in it somewhere where I know it might have just brought me back into a place where I just might tell my kids I love them more often than I might have done before or I don't take life quite as seriously as perhaps I did. I prefer not to have had cancer, but they're part of it. So even when you start to get good at doing the hard is that all you're doing is making more room for more hard. So even in adversity, what that actually does is it proves to us that we can actually work shit out together. And we're okay. We've come out the other end and we're better for it. And the next time we'll face into adversity of a similar sort of nature, we'll be able to handle it better than what we did last time. So that's a natural part of growth. Everything that we train and we develop in sport is to prepare people for that adversity. The challenge is we're often doing it with really young, underdeveloped. The male brain doesn't really kick in until it's mid-20s and we're asking young men to do that. And again, that's just prep for something else. And no, no difference. Even in the work that I do is we all talk about the habits, you know, that you've got to build habits. And if you get good at the habit, well, it changes how you think about yourself. So I'm someone who meditates. What is the value of that? Well, I think it's stillness is a really important thing to be able to have, you know, the clarity of thinking in difficult times, challenging times, and help me with cancer, those sorts of things. Okay, so, but is it a hard thing to do? Well, not particularly. Then you go, but why don't people do it all the time then? You know, it's only 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, that. Because most things that we want to be good at, we have to be good at doing the reps in one way or another. If you want to exercise, you've got to do the reps. But the first rep is actually getting up in the morning and getting your runners on if you're going for a run. The first rep, I'm a cyclist, so the first rep for me is getting my bike ready the night before if I'm going to go for a ride. Then the second rep is actually getting up in the morning, getting on the bike. And then the reps start when you're on the bike. Am I going to push up this hill or I'm not going to push up this hill? Am I going to try and stay with this person or I'm not? There's reps inside the reps. And so even with something like meditation, is the first rep is to create, to sit down quietly on your own and in a way which works for you. And then most people say, oh, when I do that, my mind goes all over the place. Okay, that's the reps. Because the whole exercise of meditation is actually bringing yourself back from when your mind naturally does that because mm. that's what's going to happen in life. 
So that's the reps. And people say, oh, I'm not good at it because I expect I'm going to sit down and everything in the world's going to be silent and, you know, and the Dalai Lama's going to pop around the corner or something like that. Well, that's not how it works. It's the reps. So the adversity that Geelong talk about is that's a rep now, isn't it? They dealt with it. And they would have dealt with it as individuals, as teams, as setbacks, because it's such an unforgiving sport. But we couldn't invent a more unforgiving no. game. Right. It's the best. And, so, and that's all right when you're sitting in the grandstand. But, you know, at different times, the game has brought me to tears often in my life, I can assure you, <laughs> even from a little boy all the way through to, you know, even little moments where, because I know Chris got quite well, you get a little bit teary when you know what. I gave him his first coaching job at Frio. Wow. Yeah. yeah, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Yeah. Now, Cameron, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've learned so much from our discussions and I cannot wait to get out there and apply some of those things. And, yeah, and it's just it's been amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate you reaching out and having the opportunity, having a conversation. You take care. Thank you. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.